Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. I'm Lizzie Post, and I am the co-author of Emily Post Etiquette, the 19th edition, Manners for Today. Your great-great-grandmother, Emily Post, is synonymous with proper etiquette and manners. Tell us a little bit about her. Oh my goodness, that depends. What what part of her would you like to meet today? Um, like, she, what was her inspiration? Oh well, she actually was was quite uh, in, encouraged by others to do this. This was not something that really inspired her. Well, that's not really true. There's two two kind of factors here. One is that in 19. 19- 15, she spent um, a couple months actually uh, driving from New York City to San Francisco. And she was doing a serial, I think, for McCall's magazine, where she would, she would you know, send back the stories of her travels. And she got to Chicago and just absolutely ripped them to shreds for how uncivil they were and the, the state of the hotel and the this and the that. And she got a lot of flack for it. And people wrote back and basically said, yeah, well, you live in a New York City bubble. And it really opened her eyes up to how she should be absorbing the rest of the United States during this trip. And it was really what I think made her etiquette advice so accessible was this experience of traveling sometimes across the country in areas where they didn't have roads yet or where women had to eat out back. Um, and I think that that, that kind of gave her, um, some inspiration in terms of really thinking about being an author and a writer for all Americans, not just the privileged Americans. And so that I, is one area of inspiration. But the other is the story of Emily Post and Mr. Duffy, who, uh, you know, Emily had written, you know, she'd been a writer. She'd written some basically some romance novels. I mean, like she would write about young women going to like Italy to find a title, you know, and it's called the <laughs> title market. And she goes and really? shops, shops for a husband and winds up with a husband who has a title and no money. She writes this wonderful thing about how you how to be the most gracious hostess, even when like all you can serve are little sandwiches or something like that. And I thought <laughs> that was really, really sweet. But she um, so she she was a romance writer. I mean, and she kept getting these calls from this Mr. Duffy. And she finally called her editor and said, can you please tell him to stop trying to sell me dictionaries? And they said, no, he's not a dictionary salesman. He wants you to write a book on etiquette. And she said, oh, that's ridiculous. The whole thing could be boiled down to a few pointers. And 627 pages later, she had something to say. (laughs) That is crazy. That's really kind of how it came about. Yeah. (laughs) Why do we think etiquette has always um, had to do with upper class, high society? Well, I think because high society manages to create rules for itself. Um, and for whether they are based in practicality or not, some of them are extraordinarily practical rules that have, that have stood the test of time. Others were incredibly affectatious and meant to separate and to divide. And those are the things that have dropped by the wayside as we've moved forward. Um, and certainly as the elite has become a smaller and smaller section of American culture. But I think that, that, mostly, um, aspiration is something that, that we Americans like, we like that dream of doing better, making more. And so we often look to the people who have more 
to to see how they behave and what goes on. And I don't always think they're the best example of what to do. Um, but I think that in Emily's day, that was very true. I think nowadays there's, there's much more of, um, I think, an appreciation of the middle class and how they live. And I think that we being a part of the middle class um, really, really kind of encompass a, a larger, um, more open and accepting view of etiquette than I think some of the, the well, like the New York 400, you know, the elite back yeah. in Emily's day. So etiquette has changed over the years. Oh my goodness, so much so. So we say that etiquette at the Emily Post Institute, we've kind of created this little math formula where uh, etiquette equals manners plus principles. And the manners are things that let us know what to expect from others and what we can expect to do in any given situation. And those are tied to cultural boundaries and they're tied to, to time. So a lot of the, the actual manners that Emily wrote about in 1922 aren't necessarily the manners that we're using in 2017. Um, they were really, you know, of days old. I do not need as a single woman to walk around with a chaperone. Um, you know, it is not appalling for me to be in a gentleman's apartment after certain hours, you know, regardless of our romantic affiliation. Um, it, those sort of things have fallen by the wayside as time has changed. And when it comes to cultural um, divisions, you know, we in the United States are very comfortable with the handshake. Or, and, and now nowadays a hug is, is you know, a, still questionable, but a, de- a very common greeting. Um, although some, I, I know a lot of women really don't appreciate the hugs that are starting to happen in the business world between men and women. I find that interesting. This would be an example of how we do it in America, whereas um, over in Europe, a kiss on the cheek might be the appropriate greeting. You know, a bow is often an appropriate greeting. Um, so I think that it's really important to recognize that manners really are the specific action that you're doing, whereas the principles that we talk about are the guiding principles of consideration, respect, and honesty. And at the Emily Post Institute, that's what we base all of our new etiquette on. We look at these values and we say, who's being affected by this situation? Um, How can we make sure that all the people who are involved in it are being respected? And what honestly is the best thing for everyone involved in terms of this scenario? And those principles, they cross cultural boundaries, right? I mean, what is a greeting? A greeting is saying to someone, you know, um, I'm happy to have, have you in my presence. I'm happy to meet you. I'm happy to greet you. I'm happy to spend time with you. Um, I want this to be friendly. You know, you're putting all that good intention out there. That is consideration, respect, and honesty. Uh, we go back to the days of, of nights when, you know, you had to be honest and your greeting was showing that you didn't have a weapon up your sleeve, basically. So it's kind of interesting how the two together combine to have really strong guidelines for, for contemporary behavior behavior and interactions among each other. You mentioned the Emily Post Institute. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, the Institute was founded in 1946 by Emily. It was her way of passing down um, her legacy to to her family members. Um, and she, she founded it in 1946 uh, with her son. And then it has passed down for each generation that has wanted to continue the family tradition um, 
there has always been an opportunity at some point where kind of the baton is being passed. Um, and my parents' generation decided that rather than pass the baton when they wanted to retire, that they would pass the baton earlier and really coach my generation and give us the support um, to be able to enter into this field, develop ourselves within it. And then as you know, um, this has occurred over the past decade now, as they've all looked towards retirement, um, we're really ready to, to spread our wings and fly. (laughs) As this is a cookbook podcast, I would love to focus a bit on table manners and food. What are your top table manners? Oh my goodness. That's a really big question. Can I be incredibly rude right now and just interrupt and say, I saw your post about you using the Emily Post cookbook and meatloaf. Please tell me it came out well. (laughs) It did. It totally. I'm I'm sensing like, no, it wasn't quite the best you've ever No, no, no. The thing is, is it like, it was such an old fashioned recipe and it was, it was really heavy, but it tasted really good. I was going to say it was probably like fat and fat and fat and add some more fat (laughs) and add some liver. The liver was the most hilarious part of it. Right. Oh my goodness. The things in that book cracked me up and I wanted to try more of the recipes, but I've only gotten, um, I've only gotten to a few and I'll admit it was years ago. I don't remember what I tried. I, the, the cookbook just takes you back to the 50s. And can we talk about the cover? It's yes. so architectural and hip and modern. I know. They had so much style back then. I was like, what? I love our cover now because I think it's really handsome. So I think that it's like good for, for uh, both men and women. But I feel like their style back then, we've got some really cool covers over the years and the typeset that they use and all the drawings, the little illustrations. Yes. I love them. Sorry. I know you asked me about what, what are kind of my <laughs> top table manners, but I had to get that in there because I've been so curious. <laughs> I saw the bacon wrapped post. I was like, oh my gosh, I love it. Yes. Um, it was really good yet heavy. Yes. I can imagine. So, um, <laughs> Top table manners. I will say that hands down, the number one top table manner um, is not put your napkin in your lap or don't put your elbows on the table, but instead is don't open your mouth when there is food or drink in it, especially not drink, but food. You do not, whether you are talking or chewing with your mouth open, this is a deal breaker for most people and will immediately make them, they might not do business with you. They might not go on a second date with you. Um, I have, I I had a roommate once who chewed with his mouth open and made that horrible smack. No, this is a pet peeve for me. I understand other people are like, no, that's like not a big deal. Why are you so grossed out by that? But to each his own. And I can't stand that. I could not eat in the same room with him because I was just like, this is horrible. Like I can't, it's totally unappetizing. So that to me is like the most egregious thing more than more than if you picked up something and ate it with your fingers, opening your mouth when you've got chewed food in it and, and showing that to other people, whether knowingly or unknowingly is the most grotesque thing you can do at the dinner table. <laughs> I would, I would have to agree. Well, yeah. When is it okay to put your elbows on the table? Is it ever? So, yeah, this is a funny one. Contrary to my sister's, um, 
lovely depiction of she, when I was little, she, she always had inventive ways of getting me to pay attention to etiquette. And, uh, she told me that there were table fairies and that if you put your elbows on the table and she doesn't remember this at all, which cracks me up that you would kill the table fairies. So that's (laughs) why you don't put your elbows on the table. I being a very imaginative child did not want to kill any table fairies. So, um, she, she, but the truth is, is that Emily never had a problem with, with elbows on the table. The trick is to do it in a way that engages you with the conversation, not in a way that shows that you are bored or tired or can barely hold your own head up without the support of a fist. You know, I think it's really important that you not do it when you have food actually in front of you that you're eating. For, because then you kind of look like you're guarding your food as if the person next to you or across from you might steal it away. Um, I think you want to wait until you are finished eating and either your plate is, is removed or it's clear that you're no longer protecting your plate. <laughs> um, and you can, you can lean into it a little bit. You know, I'm actually doing it now as we speak on my desk, trying to think of how to describe this. My, my elbows are on the table. I'm leaning in and I'm, my hands are free and I can, even though you can't see me, I'm gesturing as we talk and, you know, I can feel engaged and, and a part of that conversation. Whereas if I've got my chin in my, in my palm and I'm kind of like slouched and slumped, that's just not, that's someone who I feel like I would want to say, I'm sorry, do you want to be excused? Do you need to go to bed? Is yeah, it like, you can go now. Is it too much for you to be here right now? <laughs> So when we sit down at the table, do we, my mom always told me to immediately put your napkin on your lap. Is that right? Absolutely. When you sit down at the table, immediately put your napkin in your lap. Um, it kind of, it gets you started with everything. It's also means that you're not going to forget it. Um, and, and, you know, just leave it on the table with the silverware under it, um, or next to it. And I think also on the offhand chance that that an accident did occur, your napkin is right there in your lap ready. It's not waiting under some unused silverware where you might, you know, in your rush to clean up a mess, I don't know, manage to throw a fork or clatter things or, you know, make disruption. It just makes everything easier if you just put that napkin in the lap right away. Now, if we have a wine or champagne glass with a stem, should we hold it by the stem or underneath the glass part? So you hold it, you hold it at the stem if it's chilled and you hold it by the, uh, the cup or the the bulb, um, when it's, uh, when it's like a red wine, something that you want warm, the warming of the hand can help. Give us your handy tip to remind us that the bread goes to the left and (laughs) drinks go to the right. Absolutely. This is a fun (laughs) one. A little hard to describe without a visual, but everyone knows the AOK sign where you touch your thumb and you make a circle with your thumb and your forefinger. And then you've got your other three fingers pointing out. If you kind of align your other three fingers, you'll notice that your left hand looks like it makes the shape of a B, a lowercase B, and your right hand looks like it makes the shape of a lowercase D. Uh, so the B is on the left, the D is on the right. And sure enough, your bread is on, your bread plate should be on the left of your place setting and your drinks are to the right. So if you're at a really crowded table, you can always kind of know which is, which is yours and which is, well, I hope you know which is which between a bread plate and a glass, yeah. <laughs> but you'll know which is yours based on BD. And you can just do that right under the table or picture it in your mind. Speaking of bread, I think the bread and butter is always a tricky one. What right. is that rule? 
Doesn't everyone want to just like slather it and make a butter sandwich or it's all melty and good or like maybe even put some gravy on there? I know I do, but when I'm with others (laughs) and not trying to gross them out, um, the best thing to do with bread is you pick up your piece of bread, you break off a bite-sized piece, put down the rest of the roll, and then um, you've taken a – either your pat of butter is already on your plate or it is its own separate container for you – Or if butter is being passed around the table, you use the butter knife to slice a a pat of butter off, put it on your plate, um, and then use your own butter knife or your own knife to butter your bread. You don't want to use the communal knife to be buttering your bread. That's the one, the one thing you try not to do. Um, but you butter your bread actually against the plate. That way, if you're buttering in midair, you don't, I mean, butter is it's a grease. So it's slippery and you don't want to all of a sudden have it hit your fingers and drop the bread and clang your silverware, that sort of thing. Oh, so you put the piece of bread down on the plate. Yeah. While you just you... hold oh. the, against the plate as you butter it so that it's, you know, it's just, it's not going to go anywhere. You don't run the risk of like pushing too hard with like right. not fully room temperature butter, you know, and then like the, the bread just hits the plate or the, you drop your knife or something like that. And yes. these are minor faux pas. No one's going to like not have dinner with you if you butter your bread in the air. But if you want to know like the, the true proper way to do it, it's you break off the bite-sized piece and butter against the plate. And those pats are always frozen. They are. What is up with that? I don't know. I'm like, how hard is it to take the butter out at the start of, of the, the day and then like put it back away at the end of the day? I don't know. Someone can write in and tell us that it's sanitary reasons or something like that. <laughs> so does this rule follow with biscuits and muffins? Yes, I would imagine so as well. Yeah, anything like that where you have to butter it or, or put a spread onto it, I think. Even if you were doing, um, maybe you had like an olive tapenade or something like that, I would still recommend uh, spreading it again, you know, by holding that bite against the plate. How do you know when it's okay to eat foods with your fingers? Let's play a quick game of fingers or fork. Fork or fingers. This is a great game. And anyone who is teaching young children, this is a fun one. Um, So fork or fingers, just so you know, is a highly debated topic around the Institute. And especially as a child between my parents, um, if we get to asparagus, I'll let you know what they what they came down with. But but fire away. Fork or fingers. Let's kick it off with asparagus. Oh, okay, great. Let's get right to it. So my parents fought <laughs> over this for years. My mother said asparagus could be eaten with your fingers. My father said it was a fork food. And they came down to the the realization that truly if asparagus is already covered in a sauce, like, oh, hollandaise, please stop me from drooling right now. I love hollandaise so much. Um, asparagus should be eaten with a fork. If it is... A, I guess you would call it al dente. If it's a little bit firm, if it doesn't just, you know, if it's not totally steamed to limpness, um, you can then pick and if it's served, especially with a dipping sauce, not covered over it, then you can pick it up with your fingers and dip it. However, I would never pick up asparagus with my fingers if I was in a formal setting and my host wasn't doing so as well. Um, that is one thing I would say no matter what I try to not use my fingers if we're in a very formal setting. And you shouldn't be getting foods that are making you question it in a formal setting, but just in case. What about bacon? Bacon. If it is crisp, um, you can, and not, you know, not greasy and messy, you can eat it with your fingers. Um, otherwise, if it's limp, you should eat it with a fork. 
chicken. But it would be really sorry. I was just thinking it would be really hard to like try and eat crisp bacon with a fork. I feel like that would be futile. Yeah, <laughs> you know what It'd I mean. It'd be a million little pieces. Keep breaking into crumbs. <laughs> I can't. I can't enjoy you anymore. <laughs> okay, chicken. Well, what type of chicken? Um, let's say a chicken breast. I guess you cut that up. Is it on the bone or not on the bone? Oh, let's say on the bone. Okay, on the bone, I would say you have options. But on the bone and fried, you're more likely to to pick it up. On the bone and um and like roasted, I would not be picking it up. Too too juicy, too messy. Um, but even fried chicken, again, depending on where I'm at and depending on what my host is doing, I'm going to be really careful about picking up something that's not a drumstick. French fries. Oh, totally. A finger food if um, they are served, you know, with other finger foods like a burger or something like that. If they're served covered in gravy, which we have a place in Burlington called Nectar's that's like famous for its gravy fries, um, which we, of course, always eat with our fingers disgustingly. Um, but that's something else entirely. If it's if it's got a sauce on it, if it's got gravy or if you put ketchup all over it, you should use your uh, your fork. Um, I would also say that if you get them as like like steak frites, I would be more likely to use my fork for steak frites kind of dinner than I would for burgers and fries. Um, but you kind of have to play that one by ear. Pizza. Definitely use your fingers for almost every single time you eat it. Um, again, if you're at a slightly more formal place and, you know, like a flatbread got ordered, I might consider picking up that fork and knife just so that if I'm at a business meal or if I'm really not trying to distract in any way from the conversation, I don't, I just don't want to get messy and greasy. And if cheese is at that right temperature, it just stretches for forever and ever and ever. (laughs) And you don't want to be caught in that scenario when you're trying to impress somebody. Okay. Shrimp. Okay, tail on or tail off? Um, I'd say tail on. Tail on, it's a finger food unless it's tail on and like in a in like a a, a fra diavolo or like a pasta primavera or something like that. So as long as it's not coated in sauce, if it's just served like a shrimp cocktail, then as long as it's got that that tail, think of the tail like your handle. And it's okay to then dip, bite, and and put the tail down. Um, but if it's been served without the tail, you should probably go with a fork. And then if it's only been served with a teeny tiny fork, which sometimes happens, um, you should try and use the fork as best you can. But I always think that's a little silly. I think you should save the little teeny tiny fork for the oysters that it's meant for. I love the teeny tiny forks. It's cute, isn't it? It's so cute. It's like really cute, but I hate being given it when like the sh- you get jumbo shrimp and a teeny tiny fork. I'm like, whose idea was this? <laughs> like that just doesn't seem right. The shrimp is like heavier than the fork. <laughs> okay, tacos. That's our last one. Oh my gosh. I just so you know, I'm a taco fanatic. Um, <laughs> I, I love tacos. And when I switched to being uh, mostly vegetarian, they became like my saving grace for a while. But tacos, if they're um, the, the trouble with tacos actually isn't they're they're a finger food 100%. But the problem is is that then you like you take one bite of a crunchy taco and like half the taco has like fallen out and most of the shell has now crumbled and it's a total mess. At that point you can you can move to fork and start kind of scooping things onto the fork and eating it. 
So before we wrap, I'd love to know what you think about the word invitation being morphed into invite. It drives me crazy. Does it? I So I admit that one does not drive me crazy. What? I know. I'm sorry. I wish I could hate it as much as everyone else does, <laughs> but I'm just lazy. Um, it's I, I'm just so used to seeing invite that I am actually that person who has to remind herself when she's typing stuff and, and writing about etiquette that, oh, good, we have to call this an invitation. It's not an invite. Um, I think invitation is certainly the proper word to use, but the shorthand has, has definitely become invite and it is everywhere. Yeah, invitation is a noun and invite is a verb. Yeah, exactly. Makes me bonkers. So where can we find you on the web? So we are at emilypost.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter as both, uh, well, on Twitter, we're the Emily Post Inst. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute as well as Awesome Etiquette. Emily Post once said, etiquette is the science of living. It embraces everything. It is honor. And it was such an honor chatting with you, Lizzie. Thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Susie. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I'm going to have to break out my Emily Post cookbook and uh, try out some of those recipes you found. (laughs) 